Let's turn again to Luke chapter 8, uh, from verse 40 to the end of the chapter. These uh, two intertwined uh, healing miracles that speak to us of the reasons in God's delays. I don't know if you ever saw the, the comedy film starring John Cleese called Clockwise. Uh, if you did and you can remember it, you will remember how toe-curlingly awful is the, 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 uh, the comedy going through it. Uh, it Cleese plays the part of, of a headmaster called Brian Simpson, a head of a, a comprehensive school called Thomas Tompion Comprehensive. Uh, in his youth, he was always disorganized, always late for everything. Uh, but as he's grown up, he has developed into someone who is obsessive about timekeeping. And he runs his school uh, to go like clockwork. But in the film, uh, he has got to give a, a speech to the headmaster's conference. Uh, and it's an honor that was usually conferred upon headmasters in more prestigious private schools. So he is really up for this. But despite meticulous rehearsal and preparation, the journey that he makes uh, to the conference is beset by all kinds of disasters. Initially, uh, he misses his train, he loses the text of his speech, he can't find any transportation, so he commandeers the car of one of his pupils uh, to make the journey. Uh, The car ends up being severely damaged and then lost. Uh, In desperation, uh, he resorts to stealing the sports car of a passing businessman. Eventually, uh, he arrives at the conference in the ripped suit of the bereft businessman and gives uh, an impromptu speech, which is absolutely, completely nonsense, to a confused conference of headmasters. Now, the comedy from the film derives from the fact that most of us, if we're honest, know a little bit about what it's like to experience frustrating delays that drive us almost to the point of insanity. Things that go wrong one after another, conspiring to make us later and later. Now, it is the delay in the acting of the Lord that brings these two accounts together, that gives them their focus We have, first of all, a crowd who are waiting on Jesus. Luke tells us in verse 40, they were all expecting him. There's a woman who has been waiting for 12 years. She has been suffering this hemorrhage for 12 years. No cure. There's a distraught father who knows that time is running out for a critically ill daughter who's dying at home. And as Jesus is going to the home of this uh, man, he is interrupted by the woman. And the woman with the hemorrhage and her healing causes a delay which leads to the death of the little girl. Now, God's delays always have a purpose. We know that, we believe that, but it's hard to see that sometimes. Now, I don't know, but maybe uh, you're here in the church this morning and you're not yet a believer. You've not actually yet placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And perhaps one of the obstacles to that faith is that you have come up against delay in God's 
acting. You've been praying for something and you feel that if God would only answer that prayer, then it would help you to believe in God. But God hasn't answered that prayer yet. And so you doubt and you hesitate in trusting Jesus. Or maybe you are a Christian and you know in your head that God's in charge of your life and that he loves you. And yet it's hard to see that at the present time. Because he seems, in one way or another, to have put your life on hold. There's a delay. Nothing seems to be happening. What's God doing when he delays to act? Well, we can have some kind of insight into what may be God's purpose in this passage here. We're going to consider, first of all, the need that the woman... And the father of the, the, uh, the critically ill girl had. And then the strengthening of their faith that took place as a result of the delay. And then the witness, the verbal witness that Jesus requires. And then finally the eternal perspective that the Lord Jesus grants. First of all then, let's look at the need that both people had. Quite an ironic situation. Over on the east side of the lake, the citizens of Gadara can't wait to be rid of Jesus. They they have begged him to go. Uh, They've lost hundreds, thousands of pigs as a result of the, the casting out of demons from the man who called himself Legion. And so they can't wait for Jesus to go. And on the other side of the lake, there are people who can't wait for Jesus to come. They've been waiting there patiently for a long time. They're expecting him to come. But there are people, two people, who are particularly uh, eager for the Lord Jesus to come. A woman and a man who had huge concerns, crushing burdens in their lives, which they believed that Jesus can remove. And we're first introduced to Jairus. And we're told that Jairus is a synagogue ruler. Now, the synagogue was a place away from the temple where people could gather to worship. And the ruler was somebody who would invite people to to (coughs) preach or who would organize the the rota for reading of the scriptures and the saying of prayers. Now, his position meant that he had respect within the community. He was a man of standing. And so it's much, very remarkable that we find this man of dignity and of standing coming and falling at Jesus' feet, imploring him to help him. And his daughter, and it's his only daughter, and she's 12 years old, is critically ill. She's dying. Try and enter into the pain that Jairus was feeling. For 12 years, this only girl has been Jairus' pride and joy. He sang when she came into the world. He helped her when she took her first steps. He grinned broadly when she first said, Daddy. He helped her when she went to school that first day. 
and encouraged her in all her schoolwork. And now she is on the threshold of being a young woman. And if you're a father and if you had a, a little girl of 12, then you can understand what is torturing this poor man's heart. If you've had a child that's been seriously ill at all, then you know something of his pain. And even if you're not a father or a parent, you can appreciate what an awful experience it must have been to realise that she has perhaps only hours to live. Jairus' pain. And then there's the woman's need. She had an ailment that was embarrassing. Uh, even today, uh, in our in-your-face society, we still allude uh, delicately to women's trouble when referring to this kind of problem. Probably a uterine hemorrhage, a debilitating condition. And as the blood left her, it weakened her. Literally, her life force was ebbing away. She'd be anemic. It was also draining away her finances. It's interesting. Mark tells us that she had suffered many things at the hands of the doctors. Uh, now, Luke doesn't mention that because, of course, Luke himself was a doctor. So uh, he is protecting his, his, uh, his comrades in medicine. But Mark wasn't kidding when he says that she suffered at the hands of the doctors. <clears throat> the, the Talmud is a Jewish book uh, which has got the opinions of uh, many of the rabbis in it. And the rabbis had 11 suggestions for cures for this kind of condition. One of these was to take a goblet of wine containing a powder that was made from rubber, alum and garden crocus. And there's another cure which uh, was made from Persian onions cooked in wine. These are another nine cures. And she had doubtless tried them all and had suffered in different ways from these various cures. And of course, the cures didn't come for nothing and she was financially much poorer. But perhaps worst of all was the fact that her condition made her ceremonially unclean. Now, the Old Testament... Uh, especially if you go to books like Leviticus. The Old Testament has lots of laws which, to us coming at them uh, from a 21st century perspective, they seem strange. We'll wonder, what was the point? And many of these laws had to do with reminding the people that sin is a pollutant. Sin stains. Uh, sin separates. And so, in a lot of very practical ways, the, the life of the people of God was ordered by rules and regulations which were an object lesson in the seriousness of sin and the remedy that God would provide one day. And so it is that a woman like this poor woman here who had an issue of blood was regarded as being ceremonially unclean. And that meant that she was separated from going to the temple. It meant that she could 
transmit this defilement to others. For example, if somebody came and sat in a seat in which she had been sitting, then they contracted that defilement. And they also would be unable to go to the temple. Now, again, we've got to remember that the point is not so much uh, the, 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 the practical implications, but the fact that it's a lesson pointing to something spiritual. But for the woman, it was clearly uh, perhaps the, the deepest regret that she had, that she could not go to worship God because of her uncleanness. Let's see how it was that the Lord Jesus strengthened the faith of these two people by the way in which he went about dealing with their ailments. Sometimes we only grow, you know, as Christians, we only grow when we are facing difficulties. You know, if life is completely sunny and everything's going well, don't we tend just to rely upon our own native ability and we don't rely upon God in the way that we do when things are difficult. And so God will send difficulties and obstacles and obstructions for a purpose. And I'm sure all of us in different ways have seen that happening in our own lives. Now both of these people had faith of a kind. There, there was an element of faith in both of these people that we can see. And Jesus is structuring his love towards them, his, his care, his intervention. He's structuring it in, some, in such a way that their faith will be strengthened even by the delay. Jairus had come to Jesus believing that the Lord could heal his little girl. So Jairus clearly had faith in Jesus. He, he believes that Jesus can help his little girl. And in taking his action, in actually coming to Jesus, he had to overcome certain obstacles that there would have been to him coming to Jesus. Because remember, he's a synagogue ruler. He's got a certain status within the community, and that status would have prevented him ordinarily doing what he did. You can imagine the conversation that would have taken place perhaps over breakfast with his wife. Jairus, I wish you would go and speak to Jesus about our little girl. He is the only hope that we have. And Jesus says, well, you know, it's not that easy. The Sanhedrin, that's the, the leaders, are set against Jesus. Uh, it would be very hard for me down at the synagogue if it was known that I had aligned myself with Jesus. Time goes on. Jairus, I think you need to go. Uh, he is our only hope. I don't think she's got long to go. And Jairus says, yes, I've decided that I'll do it. I've decided that he has to be the Messiah. The, there's no denying the signs that he is doing. I've come to the end of the line. Our only hope is going to him. And so Jairus joins the crowd, waiting at the lake for Jesus to arrive. And when Jesus comes, the people probably politely allowed Jairus to make his way through the, the press to get to Jesus. And not caring who sees him now, Jairus 
falls down at the feet of Jesus and pleads with him to come to his house. Now, I think at this point, Luke probably wants us to remember that not that long ago, Jesus commended a Gentile for his faith. And the Roman centurion that Jesus commended believed that Jesus didn't need to go to his house, that Jesus could simply heal with a word. And so there's a a contrast here. Jairus does not have that strength of faith. Isn't that remarkable? He's a synagogue ruler, but he doesn't have the faith of the centurion. And Jesus agrees to go. Now, isn't that interesting also that Jesus goes along with the request? Because Jesus could have said, well, it's okay, uh, Jairus. Uh, There's a big crowd here. It's going to take a long time, but I can simply heal with a word. Jesus could have done that. But Jesus agrees to go. And there are going to be delays along the way. And Jesus' willingness to go leads to the real, the, the point of tension within the story, which is when his journey to Jairus' house is interrupted by the woman with the hemorrhage. That's what gives the story its tension. She comes and touches Jesus' garment and brings the procession to a standstill while Jesus calls on her to speak up. Now, can you imagine how Jairus is feeling at this point? He's thinking, why does this woman have to come now of all times? Every moment is precious. Every moment lost, it's all the more likely I'll lose my girl. I wonder how he felt when the woman at Jesus' command tells her story. Uh, Probably at first it would have been this deep frustration. But possibly also... As she tells the crowd that she had the ailment for 12 years, would the frustration perhaps have turned to sympathy? 12 years she had suffered. 12 years he had the joy of his little girl. 12 years she had been sunshine to him. 12 years she had suffered. Wasn't it right that she should be delivered? And then there's a hammer blow. Word comes from Jairus' house. While they're still speaking, while Jesus is listening to the woman tell her story, while he's giving her comfort, your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. In its brevity, there's something quite unfeeling about the message, isn't there? Don't bother him. While she was alive, there was hope, but now there's no hope. She's dead. Don't bother coming. How did Jairus feel when he heard that news? We don't know. But Jesus, with great tenderness and compassion, encourages him to go on believing. Don't be afraid. Just believe and she shall be healed. Now, In all of this, in the delaying, in the word of of challenge to have faith, we are seeing that Jesus has the good of Jairus at heart as much as he has the good of Jairus' daughter. He wants Jairus to be strengthened in his faith. 
He wants Jairus to be a strong believer. Jairus is going to behold a much greater miracle than the the healing of a sick girl. He's going to see a resurrection. He's going to witness resurrection power. He's going to have unassailable proof of the Messiahship of Jesus. And when they get to the house, of course, there are more obstacles to faith. They they have to get past the the mourners. When there was a death in a family, very often uh, neighbours would come round, and sometimes there were even people who uh, offered their services as professional mourners so they could really create a hullabaloo and create an atmosphere of, of grief. And there were all these people around. Jesus commands them to stop wailing. There's no need. She's asleep. She will soon arise as though just from a deep sleep. And they laugh at him. They scorn Jesus. Of course she's not asleep. She's dead. And all the time Jairus is with Jesus. And his faith is growing. God's delays had a similar effect on the woman. She certainly had enough faith to believe that if she came to Jesus, uh, she would be healed. She believed, in fact, that all she had to do was to touch the edge of his garment and she would be healed. Was there an element of of, uh, superstition in that? Did she have a belief in a kind of mechanical flow of power of goodness we don't know, we're not told but we know that Jesus graciously healed her certainly she wanted to slip away she wanted to to just disappear having been healed from the crowd without having any relationship with Jesus without going public about her faith and Jesus wants to bring her on from that point. He wants that faith to be strengthened. And so there is no way that he is going to let her simply slip away. So we notice that Jesus requires witness from those who place their faith in him. There is a confession with our mouths that's required. And when she touches the Lord, Jesus knows immediately that she's cured. The hemorrhaging stops Uh, It doesn't stop gradually. It doesn't simply abate. It stops right there and then. And straight away, she's looking for a gap in the crowd so that she can make her escape unnoticed. She's in for a shock if she thinks she can do that because Jesus stops the crowd and he asks, who touched me? And (laughs) there's a a little bit of of humor here, isn't there? The the disciples are looking at one another. What does he mean, who touched him? It's a bit like... You and Murray emerging from the scrum and saying, who touched me? You know, everybody's pressing in. But Jesus knows that someone has touched him in a unique way and that healing has flowed to the woman. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? And this is just speculation, of course, but Jesus, in his divine nature, knows all things and Jesus would know who it was who had touched her. And yet, he asks her to come, to come out of the closet, as it were, 
to reveal herself. He gives her space to speak for herself. And the woman, the poor woman, who had just wanted to slip away, she comes trembling to Jesus' feet. And she tells her story. She tells a story of 12 years of suffering. 12 years of hopes dashed. 12 years of disappointment. 12 years of becoming steadily poorer. 12 years of alienation. And she tells of her hope in Jesus and how that wasn't dashed. And how she's been healed completely. Completely. And you know, when, when we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have, to, we have to speak it out, don't we? There is a time when we simply want to come into church and sneak away. There is a time when we want to be quiet about our interest in the Lord. But when you place your trust in Jesus, you tell it, you speak it out. There's no such thing as an anonymous believer. Why? Well, because our speaking of our faith is part and parcel of the work that God does in in us. He creates within us a desire to testify for him. So Romans 10 tells us that uh, being saved always involves speaking about Jesus with our mouth. If you confess with your mouth... Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is in your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. So you need to confess with your mouth that you're a follower of Jesus. If you've never told anyone that you're a Christian, then you need to do that. You need to tell. You need to confess publicly of your faith in Jesus. And the more that you do that, the more often you're witnessing, telling others about Jesus, the stronger your faith grows. This is an exercise in faith building. This woman's faith is strengthened by her testimony. And then Jesus, and I love the the, the tender way that Jesus deals with this poor woman. It must have cost her so much to give her story. And isn't Jesus so tender with her? This poor, pale woman who'd gone through so much. Daughter. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. He speaks peace to her. Let's close as we look at the eternal perspective that Jesus gave to Jairus. He gets to the house at last, makes his way past the mockers who say there's no longer any hope. Jesus only allows himself and Mrs. Jairus and Peter, James and John to accompany him into the room. Those outside have mocked, they didn't believe. Those inside will witness the power of Jesus and they're not to tell. Now, obviously, people outside are going to know because she's going to be walking around soon, but they're not to know what happened in that room. The detail will be kept from them. You see, unbelief keeps you from blessing. They're not to tell. Jesus 
touches the girl, takes her by the hand. That's lovely again, isn't it? So often Jesus' grace uh, is shown by the intimacy of touch. He touches this poor girl, takes her by the hand. Little girl, I say to you, get up. She gets up. She's been dead. But she responds to the command of Jesus. And then with that same tender, practical concern for her, Jesus orders a meal. Give her something to eat. She's weak. Give her some food to take. Isn't it beautiful? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Jairus and his wife have had a window on the resurrection. How faith building is that? They've seen what it's going to be like for believers. The New Testament will take the words that Jesus spoke about this woman, uh, this little girl of falling asleep and will speak in terms of sleep when it comes to that period between death and the resurrection. If you're a believer, if you're a Christian, death is simply falling asleep in Jesus. And when we awake, when the trumpet of the Lord sounds and we rise, we're going to see Jesus. Just as that little girl, the first thing that she saw when she was raised from the dead was the face of Jesus. We will be raised and we will enter a world of love. Just as that girl did, where all her needs were met and where Jesus was all in all. When we're faced with delays, when we're thwarted, when we're disappointed, isn't it good to try to have an eternal perspective that there is a day coming when all of our hopes will be realized, when we will enter a world of love and Jesus will be all we ever need. Let's close just applying very quickly some of the lessons from this uh, to ourselves. When God delays and seems to bless others before he blesses ourselves, let's remind ourselves that God's blessing never runs out. Because God is blessing elsewhere doesn't mean that he's run out of blessing for you. And so we should rejoice always when others are blessed. We should rejoice at a corporate level. You know, when other congregations prosper and God seems to delay in prospering us, then we should rejoice because God has his time and his fund of grace is not limited. Learn that God often deals in our lives so that we do come to the end of our own resources. With Jairus and the woman, uh, the delay was such that they came to a point where it was clear that there was no help for themselves within themselves. It had to come from outside. They came to an end of their own resources. Now God will so often deal in our lives like that. And if we are to be saved, we must know that we cannot save ourselves, that there is no help within ourselves. And our problem so often is that we think we need a little bit of help from Jesus, that we're quite good people, but with God's help, 
with God just giving us that little bit extra, we'll be right with God. And that's a load of rubbish. We cannot save ourselves. We are dead in sin. And we need to realise that. And we need to come to an end of our own self-help and trust ourselves completely to Jesus. And sometimes God's work in our lives is to instruct us that we're much bigger sinners than we ever thought. And we need a great saviour who can do what we cannot do ourselves. For all of us, our testing circumstances bring us to see that the best thing in the world is knowing the Lord Jesus Christ as our saviour. That's much, much, much bigger more important than the things that we think our life turns on. And one day, all of our ailments, our restrictions, the things that disappoint us, the things that have seemed like protracting delays, they will be done away with when we enter that world of love where Jesus presides, where he will be the first face we see and where his joy and love will fill our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the love of Jesus. We thank you for the wonderful way his tender sympathy shines through in the scriptures. We thank you for the love with which you have loved us. Lord, we pray that your love will touch each and every heart in this room. We ask, Lord, that we will commit our lives to you and trust in you completely, not relying on our own strength. And help us to see, Lord, that when our prayers seem a long time in answering, that there is a purpose in your delays. And Lord, may our faith be strengthened as we know that you love us and want our good in every circumstance. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And <clears throat> we're closing a singing, a benediction. Benediction then. May the peace of God, our Heavenly Father, and the grace of Christ, the risen Son, the fellowship of God the Spirit, keep our hearts and minds within his mind. Maybe perhaps we have an extended input so we get the, the full first verse and then we'll stand up and sing it.
Father, may that blessing remain upon our lives now. Your grace, mercy, and peace. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen.